Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. Today we're talking about Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and author and philosopher who focuses on a bunch of different domains. But the thing he's he's maybe best known for now is his podcast, Making Sense, where he brings to, uh, various guests on to discuss topics in philosophy and um, like current events and politics. <laughs> Just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. So today we're going to get into um, one of his main ideas, which is his idea of the moral landscape, which is based on the his claim that morality can be determined based on scientific facts. Cool. So can you tell us uh, what is that argument then? So, okay, so we, we kind of have to go back to, to David Hume, who's this, uh, this Scottish philosopher from, from the 18th century. Um, and the thing that Hume is known best for maybe, or one, one of his, one of his main contributions um, is this idea of the isot distinction, which has been super influential ever since it was brought forth. And the, the idea is basically that you can't get to moral claims or statements about how the world ought to be from scientific fact, from just statements about the way the world is. Yeah, at some point you have to smuggle in some kind of assumption or, or values or something. Okay, so I guess, yeah, how, how does he come to that conclusion? So basically, I mean, the, let me see if I can find. So this is from his book, A Treatise on Human Nature, which is from 1739. Uh, so he says, in every system of morality, which I have hitherto met with, I have always remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary ways of reasoning and establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs. When all of a sudden I'm surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought or an ought not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. Whereas this ought or ought not expresses some new relation or affirmation, it is necessary that it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that a reason should be given. For what seems altogether inconceivable, how this new relation can be a deduction from others, which are entirely different from it. Hmm. So is he kind of saying that that you can't go from saying this is the way things are to this is the way you ought to be because of it? Right. Without making an assumption. Right. And, and it's, it's not, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't apply to to things like uh, if you don't want to die, you should not drink the poison. Hmm. <laughs> like it's uh, 
it, it's specifically about moral claims like so, what's best for society or what's, okay so, you know. so so the difference being that there's the presupposition of a particular goal that if you have a particular goal in mind it makes sense to think in terms of what you ought and oughtn't to do to get to that outcome but if you have a broad societal landscape you can't assume any particular goal because the goals of the individuals are going to be so widely varied yeah yeah and, and those those depend on culture and a bunch of assumptions that you're that you're bringing in yeah makes sense to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah so so and this is i think you know something that's way more accepted than not within philosophy this this idea of the is not distinction so sam harris's whole argument is that that distinction doesn't hold because at the root of any kind of moral claim is the fact that we're all conscious beings that either experience pleasure or pain and that that's kind of an incontrovertible basis for any any kind of morality like like consciousness and and the experience of, of conscious beings so his stance is that since society is made up of individuals who can feel pleasure and pain the moral stance is to make decisions on other people's behalf to optimize their pleasure and reduce their pain yeah yeah so what do you mean by uh act on other people's behalf well isn't that embedded in saying we ought to do this as a society because the 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 core of the is ought distinction by Hume is that each individual has their own goals and so to have any blank blanket assumption about what we ought to do is illogical and Sam Harris is saying no you can have blanket assumptions about people now any blanket assumption is going to include making decisions on behalf of other people right yeah that that might be part of it i think i think i don't know if hume was concerned so much like individuals versus the collective i think where, where he thought the the basis for morality was was in the emotions how do you mean which uh well that the, the they're what what motiv motivate us to come up with certain certain moral systems uh like our you know um like emotions like disgust or or anger mm. or sadness that we feel that those are the motivations for any moral system for society that we might devise yeah yeah I think so and harris is disagreeing by saying that no you can have a logical science-based impulse toward the same end yeah so I'm curious, what, what do you think about, so we, we both watched this this TED talk that he gave on on his idea of the moral landscape, um, which maybe we'll get into more of the specifics of the idea mm -hmm. in a bit, but like, what did you think of it? It was, first blush. It was very stirring and uh, he definitely makes some, some very provocative points that I think bear exploration. Uh, especially as he gets into uh, the specifics that we that we'll get to later, um, there's 
uh, really a very emotional edge to what he's saying because on a certain level it's like talking about these grand abstract notions but then to see how that really pertains to a human life yeah it, it is interesting because because this whole I- idea of an is-ought distinction is kind of abstract mm-hmm. but in the in the the things he talks about specifically with with religion it, it's it's such a yeah such a visceral mm-hmm. um dilemma now before we jump right into that i want to back up a second and explore this is-ought distinction concept a little more because to me we're from from this exposure that I've just had of it a few minutes ago, I'm <laughs> I'm still on Hume's side. Um, yeah, I I think that he's got a, a fair point that you can't really make any uh, logical claims toward how other people should live. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I there's a there's a good conversation that uh, between Sean Carroll and Sam Harris that we can link to. Um, where Sean Carroll's pushing back a lot, and and basically, I think what it comes down to for him is that he says, you know, both both science and morality are based on certain base assumptions, but mm. those two things, the two sets of base assumptions, aren't the same or they don't overlap. Mm-hmm. So, like, sure, you can you can base your morality on this base assumption that the the well-being of conscious beings is the most important thing and kind of the guiding light but you have to acknowledge that it's a base assumption Mm. and not just like a given from the from scientific fact yeah i want to run i run i want to run a hypothetical situation by you this is entirely playing the devil's advocate but so all right so take this hypothetical scenario you have a gimp who loves to feel pain and torture and misery that's how he derives the greatest satisfaction now if you have a moral stance that you should reduce suffering in other people and you want to apply this blanket stance across the board and so maybe you enact a policy that says no more gimps, you see, you know, no, uh, consent is not a viable grounds for, for having this kind of experience. Wouldn't that be sanctioned under, under Harris's approach? Uh, (laughs) you're not the the first person to think of that kind (laughs) of, uh, (laughs) thought experiment. And so, so, I mean, so, so this whole moral landscape idea is, is kind of, uh, a flavor of utilitarianism in general. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, and I'm I'm blanking on how exactly utilitarians deal with that kind of thing. <laughs> so so deontology is is like is the idea that you should never do certain things. Like it's wrong to kill people. It's it's the whole idea of of in the trolley problem. Right. Uh, deontology is hitting the five people because you shouldn't kill someone under any circumstances Mm. and utilitarianism is you should kill the one person even though you're killing someone because it'll save those those five people so in in your experiment uh if you were thinking deontologically you would say yeah you you should never like people should never undergo harm Mm. 
but if you're looking at it from a utilitarian point of view then that if that you know if that person undergoing quote unquote harm is what's going to get them off then it's okay because <laughs> the the result is is increased satisfaction or well-being hmm. but but the problem there it, it's like how do you, how do you define well-being it's not it's not such a yeah. such a clear thing yeah right that that's really the hard part because that uh state of well-being could be so many highly variant states of living for so many different people yeah yeah and one thing about sam harris in general i think is that he makes what seem like very simple direct common sense arguments and it's it's tempting to just go right along with them <laughs> Mm-hmm. because he has such like a, a persuasive way of speaking and mm-hmm. um and sometimes i think he's he's on the r- right track but sure. I, I do think yeah it's 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 more complicated right yeah he, he has a very compelling way of speaking and presents information as if it's very straightforward but there's often hidden layers meaning that he uh might not come to ultimately the right conclusion or, or or what other people might think is right, but it it really shows to me that it's important and especially valuable to consider all of his ideas. Yeah, I think yeah, I think he has def- he definitely has like a, a positive net effect on on society and and the dis- discourse or whatever. It would seem that way to me as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's equally as important to not uh, take everything or anything he says for granted. Yeah, so maybe this would be a good time to talk about kind of how I got into him and yeah, please and all that. So so yeah, he was he was actually my door into the whole podcasting world pretty much. Like I mean, before him, I think I I listened to like this one astronomy podcast and that was it. <laughs> but I hadn't really gotten to the whole like long form conversation kind of science and philosophy and, and politics world of podcasting. And uh, it was literally like a Facebook ad, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, like, I, you know, something that I'd like seen go by a couple of times with like, oh, like four of your friends, like, like Sam Harris. And it always seemed kind of edgy to me. I wasn't sure if it was like something I should be getting myself into or not. <laughs> um, and I think I remember I like listened to a few episodes, then I went went back to the first, like the very first episode he did, um, which I think I sent you part of. And it was called Drugs and the Meaning of Life. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's that about? And and I think this was like maybe like a year or so after the first time I had done acid. And somehow I'd never really heard someone talk about it, about psychedelics in the way he did, even hmm. though, you know, there's a pretty, you know, as as we know, <laughs> there are lots of people who talk about them that way, like Alan Watson, Terrence McKenna, and you know Ram Dass, and but I I had I had never really been to I'd never really been exposed to that before, and um, I think uh, you know as we've talked about a little bit, I very much saw my first acid trip in kind of a a spiritual religious light, like I had you know I'd been fairly sure for the past you know, the, the few years before that, that, that religion was just totally wrong about everything and, mm-hmm. and not really worth anyone's time. And, and, uh, I don't know, I don't know about not worth anyone's time. Um, 
that like i i didn't know i was i wasn't going to be a christian or whatever mm. um and that that whole asset experience made me way less sure that i knew what was actually going on mm. and i i saw it in kind of that quasi religious light even though it, you know it wasn't like a conversion experience or anything but but he he kind of gave me the, the kind of more rational context for that while at the same time being being spiritual hmm. so I was, I was kind of i was kind of hooked after that i think um and again it was this whole world i hadn't really got into before and yeah i mean through him i found very bad wizards and um probably sean carroll and you know a bunch of other other people who i'm i'm really interested in now so now you're down the rabbit hole yeah who's <laughs> <laughs> the mad hatter in this analogy <laughs> alex jones <laughs> Pro- probably joe rogan <laughs> yeah <laughs> change places Oh, and I guess I guess one more thing on that note. I mean, he he also he was also the one who got me interested in in meditation, along with along with the whole psychedelics thing. I think one one of the things he he has said that like uh, is that if, if psychedelics are like strapping yourself to a rocket, then meditation is like a, being on a sailboat. Yeah, and you can you can get to the same places eventually, but it's it's a little more. Uh, <laughs> Uh, de- depend dependable. Well, Trevor, I'm pretty sure you can't get to the moon in a sailboat. <laughs> okay, well, we'll pretend pretend it's a, pretend it's a suborbital rock. Okay, like you can end up. <laughs> you gotta be specific with your metaphors here, Trevor. Yeah. I I didn't I didn't make up the map. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's that's. So how how uh. How long have you been doing meditating then? Uh, I've honestly I've been pretty like inconsistent about it lately. I mean, there was there was a time, I guess it was like twenty eighteen because I I only really started doing it after I had a really like nasty breakup, in in early twenty eighteen, and mm-hmm. was just kind of trying to get my shit together, and I did it I did it pretty much every day for like a good few months or so. I mean now I don't. I don't really do it like formally that often, but I feel like I've been pretty good about kind of integrating mindfulness into my, into my day. Mm. Like, especially when I'm, when I'm on walks and stuff, I try to be very mindful and conscious of, you know, just the way things sound or just the way walking feels. Mm. Now, when you say you try to be mindful, is that just a figure of speech or, um, or are you doing it wrong? (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 idea the idea is that for it, you know, for it to seem effortless. But I mean, it depends what you mean by the word try. I mean, you shouldn't, you know, uh, you shouldn't be like scolding yourself for for getting distracted or or anything like that. Hmm. Well, it just but, makes me think about uh, Alan Watts. He has this little thing he says, which he I think took directly from some eastern philosophy where there's this little story where there's the student who's studying under the enlightened monk to become enlightened and first they say okay look um you don't you don't desire things and 
work on not desiring things and the student goes really and practices and does it really well and says look hey look i don't i don't desire this anymore i don't desire that and then the teacher says okay good good but isn't by trying to not desire things isn't that you desiring to not desire yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's a very very zen way of of looking at it <laughs> yeah so so i mean you can get kind of like loopy and esoteric like that <laughs> but but <laughs> um i mean med- meditation is 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 basically sharpening your attention or like flexing the muscle of your attention so it takes it takes you know conscious effort mm. to do it mm. at least for you know at least while you're starting and for, and for a long time after i mean yeah the goal is to kind of have this this feeling of effortless awareness but yeah you can't you can't really get there without some kind of some kind of effort mm. yeah i mean actually so uh when i do meditate i use i use sam Harris's app and, and pretty much at the end of every like 10 minute meditation the last minute is just let your mind be completely open and don't expend any effort at all mm-hmm. yeah i mean it seems like it could be a very valuable practice i uh personally i've never really delved into conscious meditation but like you're saying i feel like i've at least at times managed to integrate a degree of reflection into my daily life that could be the same as the desired outcome of meditation yeah yeah and it, it is, it's a tricky thing because I, I think a lot of the reason <laughs> I, I find myself not doing it now is because I feel pretty pretty mentally stable and like I'm on 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 solid ground but but kind of the thing is uh for it to help you you need to do it all the time mm-hmm. and and then it'll be then it'll be there to kind of catch you when you need it mm. it seems to me that the value that it creates is the space right it's the the space in which reflection happens that is it's the landscape the possibility of perceiving of being aware of your existence of the world and every time you make space for that awareness the awareness will flood in mm-hmm. uh, and part of the mindfulness practice and meditation is is you know at the same time you're you're making an effort to to concentrate you're trying to notice that consciousness itself is is appearing or things are appearing in consciousness without effort. Yeah. Like you don't have to you don't have to try to be aware of things. They they just are in your awareness. Mm. Yeah, totally. And maybe in the same sense uh to meditate is less about trying to like put in the effort to shape the space, but rather allowing that space to exist and simply if you let it happen it will yeah and i guess i guess i mean we should we should be a little more specific because there's lots of different kinds of meditation Mm. so so mindfulness is the one people are probably most uh familiar with um there's also this this version called metta or loving kindness meditation where which is where you 
picture someone and you start with someone who you know you really love and and you just the thing that you meditate on is i wish this person well i wish them happiness you just try to try to focus on that feeling of of wishing this person well and then you progress to someone who who is kind of neutral and then eventually you progress to someone who you have like kind of bad feelings for mm. or or have have a really troubled re- relationship with mm. um which i find to be really difficult <laughs> <laughs> i wish this motherfucker happiness yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean it's it's not like the wishing happiness that's the hard part it's just i think i i started thinking about like all the all the awful shit <laughs> that mm. like has has been involved <laughs> um <laughs> so there's that and then there's also the kind of meditation that, that sam harris i think promotes the most uh which is this uh tradition of uh dzogchen which is explicitly focused on recognizing the the non-duality of consciousness the non-duality of consciousness what does that mean yeah so this is this is uh definitely one of the the main places that that meditation intersects with psychedelics uh because you can achieve the same kind of ego death state that you would get on psychedelics with with uh intensive meditation practice how how does the term non-duality relate to ego death uh, so non-duality refers to this this kind of subject-object distinction, mm. right? Like I'm in here, and there's objects out there that I can see, mm-hmm. and so it's dual, right? There's two things that are there. Yeah. And uh, part of the the idea of this practice is to notice that there's no observer, like there's no there's no seat from which you're you're seeing things, like you're not behind your eyes seeing things. They just like are appearing. Hmm. Uh, if that makes sense and and you know the, one of the analogies that i found to be most helpful and actually when i have been meditating recently i've been i've been going through this this course on the app but um it's about this idea of having no head hmm. which was this concept that this guy uh douglas harding came up with sometime in the 20th century i'm not gonna remember the exact year but uh, it, it's it's this idea that the the feeling of ego death or non duality is analogous to to realizing that you can't see your own head. If you know, w- without a mirror or anything, when when you you know just observe your body, you see you know you see your legs, you see your torso, and where your torso terminates, there's just like the world. Mm. And if you can focus on that feeling, it's it's kind of analogous to to what ego death or or the loss of the sense of self feels like. I remember when I was a freshman in college having this kind of zen-like moment amid the stress of, of everything. And it was while I was in band, like the concert band, and there's all these music majors around me with their instruments and their tense directionality in life. They, they had, at all these, it seemed to me all these performance majors with their very narrow particular practice that they were devoting everything around. And I had this visceral imagery of all of them as sort of a projection of their form, but it was kind of like 
a subjective shell. It was like if you were to look at them head on, you would see a whole person. But if you went around to the side, you would see they were just like uh, that part of them that is facing forward. And there's there, the place where they are rooted is, is nothingness. <laughs> 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 wow. which seems really really judgmental i know but uh, of course it extended to myself as well <laughs> wow uh <laughs> the place they're rooted is nothingness meaning like their their whole life is a lie or like oh no just that <laughs> their meaning that they derive from life is entirely relevant only to a particular trajectory through life and if they are examined from any other perspective the the meaning is proven to be irrelevant or it doesn't hold up except for from that one perspective yeah i mean like you know if if they were going to switch to another major then then (laughs) all the all the classes and everything would basically be like they just have to start over because their their experience thus far wouldn't really apply. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you mean? Uh, I mean that I guess that that is one aspect of it. Um, uh, although of course I think this stands true for anyone in any major. I think a lot of people approach life this way, where they're sort of falling falling forward, and the only way that their life has meaning, so it would seem to themselves, is by reaching toward a particular goal in the future yeah yeah it's kind of the 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 carrot and stick thing where you're you're what you want is always slightly out of reach and you're you're always just kind of striving towards that totally yeah it's that same feeling of like inevitable treadmill (laughs) yeah yeah if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. I think to kind of wrap up this this whole meditation psychedelics thing, I think this is this is really what what sets them apart from the rest of the in, intellectual dark web guys, um, which I think as I, as I mentioned in the, in our intellectual dark web episode, he's he's very much on the fringes of that group and doesn't really consider himself a member of it. 
mm-hmm. especially not anymore. Um, but I, no, no one else in in that group really has this connection with with meditation and I guess spiritual philosophy is what you'd call it. No one else really have has that mm. kind of bent. And you'd say that that is a significant difference, a, a very meaningful distinction. I think so. Yeah. Um, mm. Not that they're not into philosophy, but it's uh, particularly particularly with regards to spirituality. I feel like no one else really has that that much of an interest in it. They're not woke like he is. <laughs> oh, I think they're all pretty. They're all pretty anti woke. <laughs> uh, which is yeah, good good segue to get into kind of uh, <laughs> a bunch of the more controversial shit he said yeah so let's go back to that ted talk because he gets to some very particular areas here so so yeah so kind of the first thing that made him a big a big name was his first book the end of faith um did did you read read anything about that no like i should have i should have sent you some stuff um but basically he said that he wrote the first chapter kind of like all at once i think very immediately in the aftermath of 911 mm. and and he's talked about that as as a moment where he realized he was still living in history which i i i thought i think is a pretty remarkable idea cuz you know we have we have this i think a lot of us have this idea that you know we're we're in a a western developed country like we're you know, stuff like that doesn't happen here. Mm. There's never going to be a war on U.S. soil, that kind of thing. And I think he said for him that that event kind of shook him out of that that assumption. Mm. And so when he says he was living in history, does that mean like because he was in reaction to this uh, monumental change in United States American consciousness perception of of their own safety. I I think he meant more that you know nine eleven will, will go down as as a a gigantic event in U.S. history, and that events like that can still happen and are happening. I think he meant it more more in that way. And then, also kind of comparing that, I think to how rooted in the present we are that I I think there's a a certain degree of presentist chauvinism that we experience where we think that what we're living through is so unprecedented and remarkable that the future generations will surely remember it. But really, I mean, sure, people will remember some things for a while, but then in the grand scheme of things, they're really, really not that special compared to what future generations may also have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a good point. I mean, if yeah, you know, now that we're thinking about World World War Two, I mean, I even, I mean, that the the only thing that comes, I think, even close to nine eleven is is Pearl Harbor, right? Sure. Yeah. There's that. Uh, <laughs> Rick and Morty scene where they're bombing like 
Oh, where it's where it's like is that where it's like the purge and they're that's a different no it, it it's in the season four i think and there's like the creature the parasitic creatures that look like balls that go on your face <laughs> and they have like a society and then rick and morty break out of the society and decide as like a fuck you they're going to bomb all these innocent civilians and then there's like the twin towers and they're looking at it and they're like no we're not gonna go there and then they go past that, and then there's like a, a a harbor with like ships more there, and they're like that. On the other hand, <laughs> I forgot about that. Um. <laughs> Maybe the first Rick and Morty reference we've made on this entire podcast, which is oh no, we've definitely had some before. Really, at least two. Yeah, huh. in the early days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so so yeah, after in the aftermath of that, he wrote this book, The End of Faith, which was aimed at, at all religions, pretty much, specifically Christianity and, and Islam, I think. Hmm. And and he was kind of part of this this other informal group called the the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse or the <laughs> four not, hor- that's not atheist, dramatic at all four atheist horsemen <laughs> i don't know if the, the word apocalypse was actually in there but um <laughs> so it was like him and richard dawkins and dan dennett who's another philosopher and then christopher hitchens and uh so the, the four of them were pretty pretty prominent in the culture for, for being really, really strongly against against all religions, just kind of on the basis of based on the fact that they're not based on, you know, scientific fact, but they're based on really you know, texts that were written thousands of years ago. Mm. And that uh I mean one one of Sam Harris's arguments is that you know, anyone literally anyone alive today knows far more about the way the world works than than anyone, you know, who who wrote the Bible or, or the Quran or anything like that. Like mm. there's, there's no comparison between just a normal person today and, and the people who wrote those books in terms of, you know, in terms of knowledge about how the world works. And of course you could, you could argue that it's not really relevant mm. to, to, you know, the, the morality that's, that's contained in, in religious texts, but he does, he does kind of have a point. I think, I, I think this is an important uh, moment to recognize that there are so many different ways to interpret these texts. Let's take, for example, the Bible, which you may take as a history, uh, an imperfect history, but a history nonetheless. Or you could take it literally, or literally infinite interpretations in between. And I think there's a lot of people who derive real meaning by examining these texts and these philosophies in the texts and uh, and creating ways of life with that as an inspiration. Now, I personally, from my own experience, having grown up in a Christian church, came to the conclusion that 
my engaging with this source material was actually detrimental to my own progression after a certain point. And that is what ultimately led me away from that and through atheism. So, so, so I guess I'll just start there and say that I see in my own personal experience how religion can be a negative aspect and I've also seen in other people interpretations that have been wildly valuable to that person's identity. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I personally, like, I, I I don't go around telling people that, you know, oh, you shouldn't believe in, in God or, you know, follow religion because it's it's detrimental. Like, you know, it's, it's whatever people get out of it. And mm-hmm. if it's a net positive for people, then it's a net positive. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Um, it, again, it does kind of get back to to how Sam Harris and and a lot of a lot of these uh, kind of new atheists is, is the other term that people use to describe them. A lot of these new atheist guys make these very direct and arguments that they present as being very obvious and kind of incontrovertible. But it's it's more it's more complicated than that. Definitely. Now, so he, he's talking in his TED Talk about specifically Islam and the kinds of things that are believed not only by fringe groups, but by a majority of, of Muslim people. Right. And I think right away we run into the problem of like which which groups of Muslims are we talking about? Because we should say, say first off, right off the bat, like there are plenty of Muslims who are practicing their religion and and not harming anyone and you know practicing in a very positive way and um you know all over the world but there there is a difference between muslim populations in the u.s and and muslim populations in in countries that are are majority muslim and the way those those practices kind of play out over there that i think uh makes makes this whole issue a lot harder and more complicated to talk about because of well, i mean myself included people don't have a lot of direct experience with with people in in these majority muslim countries um or even you know with with muslims in their own country i mean i i know at least i mean i think one i know at least one person who's who's muslim i don't yeah i don't know if i can think of another one yeah, right now not, but, not yeah, a it's, it's pretty, wide pool to draw from yeah 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 so so in his talk harris is delineating there, so there's different groups of Muslims. So he says at the center you have jihadists. These are the extremist, violent people who wake up and they want to kill apostates. Yeah, apostates being people who left the faith. Correct. And outside of them you have Islamists. These are people who are just as convinced in martyrdom and paradise. He says. And isn't the isn't part of the distinction with Islamists that they want to establish a government that's based on Islamic principles? Yeah, totally. So so they want their they want Islam to be everywhere, but they're not going to go blow up trains to do it. They want to work within the system, Harris says, to you know change government policy to have Islam be at the core of everything. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of the extremists plus uh, the, the larger percentage of the Islamists represents 20% of the population. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is more moderate? So then he goes on and says that even in the UK, 78% of Muslims 
believed that a Danish cartoonist who did a depiction of Muhammad should have been prosecuted. So the, these there's still quite a majority who believe in sort of extreme... Extreme ideologies. Yeah, exactly. And so outside of that, there's a, a vast majority who are conservative Muslims, and these people hold views about uh, feminism and homosexuality that we in the West would consider immoral and we might even have a very strong emotional reaction to where we to see the same kinds of uh, stances, the same kinds of prejudices and uh, misogyny in our own culture. And in fact, we do often get way up in arms when we see even a small amount of those things. And, and so his, I guess his main question is why don't we get up in arms about it when we see this much more severe systemized misogyny and, and bias in a different culture? Yeah, I think the reason for that is our knowledge of the legacy of colonialism mm. and that we don't want to feel like we're imposing Western values onto these countries that have already been so messed up by European powers one of the more famous examples I think was, um, you know, after world war two when they, when the European countries were dividing up the middle East, they did it in a very kind of hap haphazard way. And, you know, just kind of drew some lines randomly, not randomly, but not with any regards to you know the actual populations that were there. And you can very plausibly argue that a lot of the, the strife that's going on there now is because those European countries didn't, didn't know what they were doing. And, mess things up permanently more mm. or less not permanently but but uh mess them up in a way that that is very hard to to correct mm. yeah certainly that that seems like a really important thing to thing to be aware of now i think that harris goes on and makes a pretty compelling case for that that ex that sort of extreme caution is not warranted in this case because if you look at the actual living conditions of people, for example, women in these Muslim majority uh, communities, uh, how would you describe it? I mean, so so okay, so so the one most people are familiar with probably is the hijab, right? Which has kind of become an icon of of you know tolerance and and you know the coexistence of feminism and and islam and that kind of thing which you know just covers the head and the neck there are a bunch of other different forms of, of coverings which are which cover more and more of the body the extreme being the burqa that doesn't show pretty much anything right yeah i mean if you look at it you can't you can't even really see someone's eyes in them right right um so there's that there's that aspect to it yeah, and and that people are are feeling that they need to wear this. Or the 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 most charitable charitable interpretation that I've heard or, or argument, and this is from Sam Harris's interview with Yasmin Mohammed, who speaks of her own experience uh, being raised in a conservative Muslim household. Well, she she brings up that. You know, wearing these things is incredibly 
dehumanizing was incredibly dehumanizing for her and uh, that maybe the most charitable argument for for wearing this if you talk to women who choose to wear these they, they will say generally that they feel safe doing so because if they don't then they could be raped by a man and isn't that kind of a horrible situation to be in of having to cover yourself up entirely in this big unappealing covering in 120 degree weather so that someone doesn't rape you yeah yeah totally and this this gets to what i think is is one of the main main conflicts here because we're we have it we have it drilled into our heads rightly so you know in in the west growing up when we did that you don't speak for other people you don't tell other people what to think about their experience Mm. you can only let people speak for themselves and especially as a you know as a white man you shouldn't presuppose what what people are experiencing or what they think or what they want Mm -hmm. um so it is kind of hard to get at what these these women uh like what what would be best for them and it's hard it's hard not to feel or seem paternalistic or or kind of superior you know Mm -hmm. um I'm not not saying I, I feel superior, but but no, of course. <laughs> I, I yet right, <laughs> but but I worry that you know, I think I think the natural worry is, is that you're you're coming off as as intolerant, yeah, or, or thinking that you you so obviously know better than than this whole culture that's been around for you know, hundreds of of hundreds of years. Um, and this you know this does kind of get back to the moral landscape idea. Hmm. Yeah, it does. Right. Yeah, because here we are saying, hey, look, maybe we can say this isn't quite right. Maybe even though it's us looking externally at someone else's experience, we're kind of making a a case that maybe that is a reasonable thing to do in this situation. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in his interview with uh, Yasmin Mohammed, he brings up this point where there's a raid on the household of... uh, a Mormon leader in the U.S. where they found all these underage girls in, you know, traditional conservative outfits and, like, forced to to wear these particular kinds of clothings and, you know, like, several girls per old man who's the age of their, their grandfather and... You know, they're, they're, all these people are the, the men are arrested and stuff, and the women are are liberated. And but you know, in that situation, of course, all these women are saying, "No, I love my husband. I I want to serve him. I want to do everything for him." But in that situation, we didn't take their word at face value. We kind of said, "Look, no." we we know better than you <laughs> yeah yeah and and in that situation i think i think sam harris even used the word brainwashed right mm-hmm. or one of, one of them used the word brainwashed that, that that's essentially what they they were you know they had they had been kind of indoctrinated to you know accept something as as normal that wasn't mm-hmm. normal and isn't that kind of the core of what any any culture is right it's 
a set of core beliefs that we kind of hold to just because that's the way it is yeah yeah it's 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 programming that's that's kind of it can be changed but but it's it's very hard to change it the more committed you are to kind of getting along with society the harder it is to change any of that and so would you say this is where harris's statement that science ob- objectivity lends a valuable approach to morality yeah although again it, it you know it all kind of hinges on how we define this idea of well-being hmm. yeah kind, kind of like you were saying it, it has to be decided on the individual level in the end mm-hmm. right so and you know how, how else are you gonna figure out what it is on an individual level other, other than asking people directly yeah certainly it, it, it really feels like an intractable problem to me because that's like such a, a an apt point that leads to the conclusion that live and let live you know every, any other culture we can't really judge but at the same time like there's as strong a case that you know we we can know some situations lead to experiences that aren't good and that don't give you the the freedom or the ability to address that and that by making decisions on behalf of someone else maybe you really are doing a good thing overall so this, this kind of gets to harris's idea of seeing all religions as just collections of, of ideas right mm. and and being able to say no matter what the religion is and you know no matter what what it might seem like the right thing to do is kind of from a from a political standpoint to just critique bad ideas over over good ideas yeah and there's uh, again like so many different ways you can interpret any any set of beliefs like for, for example you have fundamentalist christians who read leviticus and say well we should kill the gays and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then you have christians who don't take such a literal approach to the Bible and who come to very humanitarian stances mm-hmm. despite those words still being in the in the Bible. Yeah. So I th- I think I think what Sam Harris and the New Atheist would say or, or try to point out is is look, the like you have the Bible or these religious texts as they are, right? And science is, and, you know, current thinking is only ever taking you further away from those, right? Like the Bible isn't, isn't pulling you back from, like, it it has nothing to contribute in addition to these new philosophies or or scientific findings. Mm. Like it's, it's always kind of science and new ways of thinking, replacing ideas that were in the Bible or invalidating them. It's, it's unless you're like a complete fundamentalist and you, you know, you believe everything that's in there. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it usually doesn't go the other way. Right. So send, send the fundamentalist to Ezekiel eight. What's Ezekiel eight? <laughs> uh, I, that's the one where there's like a dad and his two daughters in a cave and the dad, doesn't want to have sex with his daughters and 
they're like, oh, no, but what are we going to do? There's no one else here. So they get him really drunk and have sex with him. Like, rape him, basically. <laughs> and then he has kids, and then they, like, lie to him about it. Wow. Uh, I hadn't heard of that one before. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, it, it also kind of relates to the, the idea of, of God in the gaps. Like, God, you know, right. religion and God explains everything that science can't explain. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, to, to go back to the kind of is-ought distinction, like, you know, religion ex- religion and philosophy explain moral things and science explains factual things. And there's there can't really be a direct connection between the two. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I think um, that is why ultimately I, I was led away from or led myself away from Christianity because it, it seemed to me that having a religion pursuing knowledge and, and awareness of the world, you know, forming an understanding of how things are and sure you can derive inspiration from these texts however to me it started to feel like what it had to offer was paltry in comparison to what science had to offer and pure philosophy so it led me to the conclusion that sure okay maybe some of the stuff in this book is true but in order to see objectively if it is true or not, I need to be able to walk away from it. And if it is true, it'll come back. But if it's not, then I will continue to learn in the places where it's relevant. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really good good mindset. Yeah, as, as much as I want to stay away from from religion bashing, I, I do think, I mean, so, so I, you know, my mom's, is like an ordained minister and you know, I've been around the church a lot. And, you know, one thing that gets talked about a lot is, you know, the various translations of certain words, like, you know, what was the original Greek mm. in the Bible? And, you know, what was it, you know, uh, what does that word mean? What are the, the bunch of different interpretations and, and all that stuff? And I, I find it really interesting, like without a doubt, I think it's, you know, it's really interesting to think about like what the original intent was uh, when it was written and like, who was it written by? I think all that stuff is is really interesting from from like a literature perspective, mm-hmm. but as far as that being the thing that you're trying to derive all your meaning and like life philosophy from, mm. it it just seems like it's doing the work in all the wrong places, you know, like spending so much time trying to figure out very very specific and and kind of granular things about this mm. this text that was written thousands of years ago yeah yeah I, I've, I've gotten the impression from religious friends who take it very seriously and, and from discussions that I've had that trying to justify like a, a meaningful view a robust understanding of life through the lens of Christianity as the example that I've had experience with just felt like jumping through hopes and bending over backwards to try to make these things fit together that really don't seem to fit together especially well from my perspective and the only thing i could think of though is for some of these people 
it is that very bending over backwards, the exerting oneself to try to make it work that grounds them and, and makes it so that they, they can approach um, an understanding. Mm-hmm. You mean the, the, the people who do find religion useful find the, or some, some people who find religion useful find it the very act of, of bending it to fit like modern life. They find that, that meaningful in its own right. Yeah, because it's such a rigorous and challenging exercise, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. So, so to go through that exercise, I mean, it, it, it flexes some muscles for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, for for me, I mean, it's, as far as religion goes, like I have I have no problem at all with the, uh, you know, of course I have no problem with all, you know, with the the love your neighbor as yourself, you know, that that kind of <laughs> well, thing. I think it's you know, important. Help, help the poor <laughs> and and. Stuff. I, I think I mean the the thing that uh that I have more of a problem with is all the the metaphysical there was a creator of the universe and this is where you go and you die and all that stuff um the assertions which, of knowledge without any evidence to back it up yeah and of course you know a lot of a lot of contemporary you know progressive Christians don't you know they they've they've abstracted those those concepts to to be very very metaphorical and mm. and and to kind of uh consider consider the whole thing just as as a as like a holy mystery mm. which i think is i think is a pretty good way to look at it because really no one no one knows yeah for sure uh i, I guess one thing one thing i want to add i mean we're talking a lot about sam harris specifically but um so yeah i mean yeah sam harris is not working in a vacuum just kind of spouting off on islam without talking to any people who who aren't actually muslim or or were muslim um one, one of the people he's worked uh the closest with is this guy uh majid nawaz who he, he wrote this book with um called i believe islam and the future of tolerance and it's kind of a a, a dialogue it's written in the form of a, of a of a dialogue between them and uh and majid nawaz is uh he's, st- he's still muslim but he's he's one of the people trying to reform the faith from the inside which is which is ultimately i mean the only way that any any change is going to happen um so i I give sam harris credit for that for for not just you know spouting off in a vacuum about all this stuff without you know talking to the people who are who are affected yeah Um, yeah and and kind of you know kind of like we talked about in our idw episode our, our political climate right now places very different or has a very different view of of certain ideas depending on who's saying them. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when the person saying them is is a white man, they tend to be a lot more skeptical. Even if, yeah, you you can find people who are of, of the identities that are most directly concerned saying the same exact things. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, yeah. I mean, there, I, I, yeah, totally. And I think there's probably maybe a good reason, at least in part, for for some of that. I mean, I think it's totally justified. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think it's justified, but it's, uh, but I think it can kind of skew things. Mm-hmm. Don't you yeah, think? yeah, it it can. And and I I was uh, when I first uh, heard Harris's talk on the subject, I was very cautious about taking what he said as speaking from a knowledgeable perspective. Um, and it wasn't really until I heard his 
interview with Yasmin Muhammad, who talks. There, there's a really touching moment in that talk where she tears up and and, and starts to cry and says that she was so moved by Harris's TED talk where he brings up this issue because she it seemed to her that he truly felt that these women these girls who are subjugated in these really awful ways in a, a large section of Muslim culture that he saw them as people and that are in the West our over reluctance to be critical of other cultures led has led us to a perspective where we kind of create a barrier between us and them us and those other people who are suffering over there because who are we to judge you know yeah 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 it was really touching Thank you.